This class is brought to you by our friends at Sumus, the revolutionary health benefit solution that gives employees unheard of access to top medical specialists across the full range of medical specialties and employers a proven way to significantly lower their enterprise-level healthcare spend. It's a transformation of access made possible by Sumus's unique marketplace model that in as little as a day connects employees across the country with over 5,100 of the best specialists at the nation's top medical centers through an elegant, simple, medium-agnostic platform and a human relationship-based user experience. The quality of Sumus's solution is unrivaled. They are currently delivering 7 to 10 times higher employee engagement, a 9.4 out of 10 employee satisfaction rate, and all while driving meaningful and measurable healthcare cost savings for the companies they serve. Now, we are delighted Sumus customers, as are many companies in our ecosystem, all of which are having amazing results, both in better health outcomes and material cost savings. So if you're looking for a benefit that provides huge value to both your employees and your bottom line, visit sumusglobal.com. That's S-U-M-M-U-S global.com. Hello, and welcome to The Art of Investing, the podcast devoted to helping you more fully experience the joys of compounding in all its forms. I'm Paul Buser. And I'm Rick Berman. We are your hosts. In each session, our teachers will be some of the world's most compelling people from across the vast range of human achievement. Take your seats. Class is in session. This show is brought to you by Pine Grove Studios in collaboration with Colossus. The hosts of the show, Rick Berman and Paul Buser, are the co-founders and co-CEOs of Sata Grove Holdings and co-CEOs of Sata Grove Management Company. All opinions expressed by any of Rick, Paul, or their podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of either Sata Grove Holdings or Sata Grove Management Company. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Sata Grove Holdings or clients of Sata Grove Management Company may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Our teacher today is giving sight to the blind. And no, I'm not talking about Jesus Christ, although he's always most welcome in our classroom. I'm talking about Jeff Marazzo, co-founder and former CEO of Spark Therapeutics, the biotech company that under Jeff's leadership was the very first in history to receive FDA approval for a gene therapy. They did so with the drug Luxterna to treat inherited retinal disease. Unlike any treatment that came before it, Luxterna is a one-time gene therapy that has the potential to actually restore the visual cycle the process that allows you to see. It's hard to overstate how revolutionary this breakthrough was, not just for patients suffering from various IRDs, but for the entire biotech complex, as Spark has helped to ignite and expand the art of what's possible and how we will seek to treat and potentially cure hundreds of genetic conditions over the coming decades. In this class, Jeff provides us with an insider's overview of the biotechnology industry, and especially the promising area of gene therapy, where science and technology are conspiring with unprecedented efficacy. He also shares the full story of Spark, from its humble origins in the labs of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, all the way through to its nearly $5 billion acquisition by Roche. Jeff's story is first and foremost about a young, talented man seeking to make an impact and to serve others. And it's not hyperbole to say that he and his team have delivered that and more, with results that literally look like the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. If you do nothing else, I encourage you to visit Luxterna's website to watch some of the patient stories, and we'll link them to our class notes. Your eyes will not stay dry for long, I promise. With that, I hope you enjoy our class with the inspiring Jeff Marazzo. Come on. Woo. Jeff, welcome to The Art of Investing. Thanks. Great to be here. We're so excited for the class to hear about your remarkable journey. 
you've been on this journey for the last decade, building and leading Spark Therapeutics. And that series of events in its own right is a career-defining achievement. We wanted to share your story with a broader audience and to talk about what's below the tip of the iceberg. We're going to get into that entrepreneurial journey and all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into Spark. But oftentimes, we find in investing and company building, people are grasping at straws to identify the real-world impact that they're having. And in the case of Spark, your impact is not only real, it's literally life-altering. We want to start there. I think I want to frame this with a quote from Steve Jobs, actually, before he passed away. Steve said, the biggest innovations of the 21st century will be at the intersection of biology and technology. And I think by the end of this class, all of us will have a much more profound sense for how accurate that statement is. Because sometimes it's difficult to see the impact that an investor has or that a company has with their products or service. In this case, it is as clear as day, pun intended. Literally, we are talking about giving sight back to people who are losing it. We're going to get into the art of what's possible as we look forward with this very exciting new technologies being developed. But maybe you could just talk a little bit about, to the extent you've had the opportunity to meet some of these patients and their families, to see the impact firsthand of what you and your team have been able to achieve for them, what that's meant to you. First of all, thanks, Paul and Rick, for including me. I don't know that there's any other way to frame it than just it's meant sort of everything to be involved in those patients and family stories. Some way, sometime down the line, when I'm hopefully sitting on a rocking chair somewhere on a porch, that's the thing that I'll remember. Those are the conversations I'll remember. I was just sharing with you, Rick, that someone shared a video, one of those videos with me recently, and it just never gets old. I um, mean, it never gets old sort of being reminded of an individual's mothers who shared with me that their kids can now see the stars and had never seen a star before in their life or an older patient who couldn't drive and then could get their driver's license again and what that meant for opening up possibilities in their life and their career. Their words of thanking the people that spent time that they'd never even met, like the people at Spark who were doing all this work. So there's other examples of things that we were working on not yet approved in diseases like hemophilia with patients that had spent most of their life having to have a bracelet on that would notify healthcare workers in the event of an accident that they had hemophilia and they needed to be careful with their bleeding disorder and asking for that bracelet to be removed because they felt that they had no longer had hemophilia. It's an incredibly humbling thing to be a part of, but it's the reason that I started on the journey to begin with because it was too remarkable of an opportunity to pass up to be involved with and help shape the arc of that technology making its way ultimately hopefully to patients which it did in the case of Luxterna our ocular treatment but yeah it never gets old and it's the thing that I'll always remember and always hold on to there's an amazing story in 2011 around how everything started you and I our friendship dates back a few years prior to that we were roaming the halls of the Kennedy School of Government. There's a famous forum there where world leaders often come pretty much weekly. It was a place of wonderful learning and across the for-profit, nonprofit, and government sectors. But I recall a couple of friends and I, we would be with you. We'd wonder why you were hanging out in the rafters of the forum, not listening to XYZ prime minister. 
You were working on these strange healthcare companies. Previous to 23andMe, you had these ideas for how you can improve healthcare costs by doing genetic testing and then pushing people towards different medications based on that. And I don't know if we mocked you or wondered why you weren't going on the typical path, but it was very striking. It was very different than the path most people were thinking about at that point in 2008, 2009. Talk to us about that moment from there up until 2011, when things went well, but then you found yourself as a free agent again, roaming the halls of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. The CEO tasked you with the impossible, and you were looking for new lines of revenue to help the hospital. You stumbled upon the office of Dr. Catherine High. What was going on? What was going through your mind, and how did that start the kernel of the vision for what you would end up building with Spark? First of all, back at that time when we were together in grad school, I would hope that I was at least had one ear listening to the prime minister of this country. But I really, at that moment in time, through probably a combination of people that I had met and things that I was reading, it was apparent to me that the next 25 to 50 years of medicine were going to be shaped by what we often call sort of the molecularization of medicine. Historically, in medicine, we have poked and prodded and looked at pictures or photographs, meaning an image, to try to figure out what's going on with somebody. We might do a blood test that looks at gross markers that we might see in your blood. We would have given you a pill, which is largely made up of chemicals that can both perhaps change something about a cell to try to correct a symptom of a disease. But basically, we couldn't really look inside a cell and we couldn't imagine a way to modify and change something inside a cell. And what I saw as the future of medicine was this ability to do just that, to look within a cell, to look at a molecular level of a cell and be able to understand the blueprints that are intended in every cell, which is basically your DNA, as well as what happens when that DNA goes through this step-by-step -step process to eventually make proteins on the outside which includes something, for example, like messenger RNA that we all know now extremely well because of the COVID vaccines. But in 2007, 6, 7, 8, I just felt that the next 10 to 25 years were going to be about the molecularization of medicine. That was what I saw as the future. And so the first venture that I got involved with, which frankly started in a class at the Kennedy School when I ended up working with a professor this was a class that was co-taught by a Kennedy School professor and a Harvard Business School professor. And that professor was a venture capitalist. And he saw the business plan that seven or eight of us worked on together. And it had to do with genetic testing. He said, it's interesting, but I've got another idea. Would you want to come work on that? And that ended up being my first job at a school was this other idea that we worked on, which had to do with trying to democratize genetic testing and make it more applicable in everyday practice. So that was the first step as I saw it was, can we use this information about genetics, this information about molecular information about cells to better diagnose and stratify patients and tell them more precisely what it is that they might be affected by. But I was hoping that somewhere down the line that it wouldn't be just about providing information back to patients that would help more precisely define their disease, but that eventually I was hoping we could do something about it with that same approach. Getting to your question, when the CEO of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who I'd known back from my other graduate school program, which was at the business school at Penn at Wharton, and I had a chance to get to know 
this guy, Steve Altschlerwell, who was the CEO of the hospital. And he said, I really need to find ways to diversify revenue sources at CHOP. Why don't you roam the halls to see if there's anything interesting? And he basically gave me a free pass to roam the halls and knock on people's doors and ask them about their research. When I eventually ended up in Kathy's lab, it was in some ways completion of that circle. The company I'd worked on before was about diagnosis, but we could hand people some really impactful and important information about their disease, but we couldn't finish the circle and offer them a solution that would change that genetic disease. And what Kathy's work was on was about changing genetic disease at its root cause, about fixing the genetic defect directly in a patient. And to me, that was the beginning of the possible future of molecular medicine, which was both the diagnosis and the treatment at a molecular level. You're basically changing and getting at the root cause of someone's disorder. That meeting famously was scheduled for an hour, ended up going seven hours. I missed four trains back to New York City where I was living at the time. And that was basically the first meeting of what would become Spark and what would become the partnership between Kathy and I in building this company that would ultimately provide and bring the first gene therapy to the United States. Gene therapy had been around for a while. Why hadn't it worked before? What did you bring to the table that unlocked finally to make it to FDA approval? Yeah, so you're right. My meetings with Kathy were in 2011. The first clinical trial in gene therapy had started in 1990. People had tried it before. The greatest volume of trials were probably around the late 90s, early 2000s. There was a big effort during that time to, frankly, start companies and investors and biopharmaceutical companies were making investments. None of those trials ended up being successful and more challenging for the field. And very unfortunately, in a few cases, the trials had caused serious side effects, even fatality in one trial, actually at the University of Pennsylvania. And the primary two reasons that the field hadn't been successful were that people were jumping in some ways to diseases that they thought had extraordinary large sort of commercial opportunities. And they weren't honoring the fact that this technology was new and that the biology was still complicated around those diseases. One reason was that people were not picking good diseases to go after and work on first. The second reason is that the field hadn't yet figured out the best delivery mechanism for how to bring and deliver a gene into a cell safely. And what had happened in some of those trials that were not successful and caused serious side effects or serious adverse events, including the fatalities, was that the delivery vehicle itself caused those safety issues. It wasn't necessarily the gene, but it was the vector of the system for delivery that was being used that caused some serious adverse events in patients. And basically, in many cases, it was essentially revving up the immune system too much because what people were coalescing around was the use of viruses. They were basically using viruses and redesigning something from the virus to use it to deliver the gene to a particular cell type, but they were using either doses or types of viruses that drove too much of a response from their immune system within the patient. And so the biggest second challenge was that we hadn't figured out the delivery system and Kathy and her team had done a phenomenal job of identifying some systems that could actually deliver efficiently, but more safely, as well as picking some diseases that had real advantages from, for example, an immunological perspective. So one of the things which we can talk a bit more about is that the eye is one of a few what we call immunoprivileged sites within the body, where especially the back of the eye, where your retina is, your immune system doesn't really have a full 
shot or view into particles that are foreign that, that enter into that space. So when you put a virus or a virus designed vector into that space, it is immunoprivileged site. And so therefore you don't have the same reaction to something that looks foreign. And so the combination of designing better delivery tools and picking smarter first targets of disease to go after was basically the main leaps that Kathy and others had made. And frankly, Kathy was really leading at that time in 2011 when I stepped into her office. In the class, we often talk about a multidisciplinary approach to life. I just want to unpack this a little more because there's so many layers to the uniqueness of what happened here with Spark. I'm wowed already with Jeff's scientific knowledge. I know he was the CEO of a public biotech company, but he had no scientific or medical background. He had intense curiosity. I think there's another element here as we move forward in the story and this initial raise of capital. This is pre-IPO, but it's from venture capitalists because this is that first phase. Once you have something that has some data from clinical trials, there's a really high quality set of folks that will invest privately into biotech companies. And for Spark, that was the who's who list. And we can talk about that. But I think one really interesting facet that Jeff decided upon with Dr. High and with the CEO of CHOP was to move away from venture capital at first and make the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia really incubate the company and own a large part of it. And there's a great Philadelphia Magazine article from earlier this year that beautifully outlines the whole Spark journey. I will put it in the notes and would recommend anyone to read it. But I love this quote on the unique investment model that Jeff stumbled upon. And it says, at the very start of Spark, the co-founders made the unorthodox choice to have CHOP as their sole investor, in part because of it, a feedback they got from VCs. And the primary thing I think we heard was CHOP has no experience doing that, and you're going to fail, Morazzo says. Implicit in their criticism or their warning was that you need to take money from a venture capitalist who will set up a company in another place because that's the tried and true model. So there's a lot going around here, and we're going to dig into this place this sense of Philadelphia, but there's a lot of layers to this. There's a sense of place. There's a sense of dedication to CHOP, who had been incubating this idea for years. There's a unique way to maneuver in the venture capital world here that Jeff stumbled upon. Jeff, share more what happened here. Why did you do this a different way? There's a lot of different pieces to that there, so we can make sure we cover all of it. So it's important to go back to the time that we were in. In 2011 and early 2012, there was still a lot of reverberations coming out of the Great Recession. And in particular, what it was doing in the biotech market, you take as a biotech investor, you're looking at the net present value of these future revenue streams. But as opposed to most other investments, where you just look at that net present value of future revenue streams, you have to then have to do a probability adjustment based on your judgment of science. And so inevitably, that is a more risky analysis than one without the scientific probability. And that was a time, frankly, not unlike the time that we're in now, although it's a different time for different reasons, where people were risk off, right? They were not investing in things that had more intended risk to them than less, in part because of fiscal policy, but in part because of other reasons. But the second thing that was happening was that, Paul, as you described up front, the space of gene therapy had multiple setbacks about a decade before, and there was no company that had even advanced into a phase three trial at that point. And so the subset of the field within biotech that was working on this area of gene therapy or genetic medicine 
was new or was new again. And people who had remembered it were concerned about it being a redux of what had happened before. And so when I looked around and thought to myself, if we were going to start a company, who would be the right capital partner for that company? And I think that's an important question to always ask when you're starting a business. It isn't about whether someone has dollars. And in some cases, if you're tight and you need to move forward with the business, you may make a decision purely because the person has dollars that they can invest in you. But if you have your opportunity, I would always ask yourself, are they the right match? Does the person who's investing here, do they bring a philosophical alignment with what I'm trying to do in the business? And when I looked around and said, who's shown a track record of investing in gene therapy and hasn't wavered from that when it's gotten hard? The answer I kept coming to was that it was the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, that they actually had been investing in gene therapy since 2004 when they set up Kathy High Center right in the middle of the time that everyone was bailing from this field. And so they had shown me not with words, but with actions that for seven preceding years, they were willing to put money into a research center. They spent $30, $40 million, not in a quote unquote traditional investing context, but in putting the hospital's excess of its revenues over costs, essentially profits, so they're a nonprofit, they would take that excess money and fund research and they were funding Kathy's lab. So they had shown me that they were willing to invest. And they were going to stick with it. And they believed also that there was a philosophical alignment here, right? The benefit of what we would do as a company would be to bring these medicines forward to patients who needed them. And that was aligned with the mission of a children's hospital that wanted to see medicines for kids come forward where they had no solution. What I did was both think about who was going to be philosophically most aligned and who had shown a, a willingness to invest in this space. And then the third reason was that I had a lot of good friends and still do in the venture capital world. All else equal, if I could take money and return money to a children's hospital as a successful investment return, man, I would feel really good about that. And I felt fourth that they deserved it. They had made this commitment in 2004 to the field when no one else had. And I didn't want to see them end up giving up 99% of the company to someone that came along and offered them $10 million to start a business just because they hadn't historically. So we did do that. We did something that no one had ever done before, which was have a hospital as a venture capitalist. The hospital ended up putting in the first $10 million in the business and the sole investor in our Series A round. They invested again in our Series B round. There was another party that led that round, but they put in actually the most money in that Series B, CHOP did. And they even invested a couple million dollars in our public offering. And all told, they invested to their credit $35 million in this new startup biotech company. And it was one of the things that are incredibly fulfilling to me about Spark is that when we sold the company six or seven years later, CHOP realized $750 million on that return. What was so profound to me about that was that that money was going to go back right directly to an investor in us who could turn around and invest in more solutions and more research for kids. And that was incredibly profound. And I can think of countless opportunities when I was running the company and we were 200 people or 300 people or 500 people where I could be in one of our offices because we were so physically close to CHOP. I could look out the window and point to the location of one of our biggest shareholders and say that when we talk about returning money to our investors, 70% of that or 30% of that or 20% of that, whatever ownership they had at the time was going to go back to that hospital. And that was going to go back to further research that was going to help kids. 
That was incredibly profound. And it, it was a way to connect people to investors in ways that sometimes is really hard. I think it was one of a number of elements that was our secret sauce and our ability to be successful because people were motivated by building and developing a first ever type of product that had never been done before in a gene therapy. But they were motivated by the fact that they knew that 20% of every dollar that we increased our stock price by went back to a children's hospital. And in the end, of course, their $35 million turned into $750 million. So it was arguably the fund manager at CHOP did probably about as well as anyone out there during that five or six year period. But it all started with asking those fundamental questions and not being afraid to pick an orthodox way to go. And I think that's certainly a part of the story of Spark. It's just incredible, Jeff. And I remember along the way in those years from afar, as you were toiling away in Philly, our mutual friend from grad school, Brad, he would text me and he'd say, did you hear what's happening with Jeff out in Philly? And then you'd see these articles, there's money raised, there's an IPO. All of a sudden, then the FDA approves Luxturna. Then you have all the top pharma companies in the world hovering around wanting to purchase Spark and eventually Roche for nearly $5 billion buys the company. What are the tough parts of this? Looking back, this is like a miraculous story, changing lives. You've changed Philadelphia. You've employed hundreds and hundreds of amazing scientists and employees at Spark. What were a few of those moments that maybe where you hit a wall and you thought this was going to fail? In those moments, what made you continue along this really difficult path? The first ones were even actually at the beginning. Now it seems obvious that yeah, CHOP should invest money in a startup company because they're going to make $750 million on it. CHOP had never done that before. Rightfully, they had a board of trustees that were thinking conservatively about how they use the balance sheet of the hospital. And it took us about 18 months to work with a small subcommittee of the board of trustees and convince them that putting in $10 million made sense. And so there was that step that was during many times during those 18 months, it was not clear to me that it was actually going to get started. We had to license intellectual property, which is part of building a biotech company. Often, you don't always start by your own idea and you file for a patent on that, on your own idea. Most often, there is work that's going on somewhere in some research enterprise. In this case, it was at the Children's Hospital. But there was also research that was happening at the University of Pennsylvania that was related to the work. There was work going on at the University of Iowa that was related to our business plans. Some of the work happening at Penn, the University of Florida had rights to it. There was even some work happening at the NIH. So we actually had to license in IP from six different places. And there were countless moments where it was not obvious that we were going to get those licenses done, in large part for much of the same reasons. So many of those universities looked across the table and said, wait, you've never been a biotech CEO before, meaning they were pointing at me. And your investor is who? Your investor is the hospital? That's not a venture capitalist we've ever heard of. So those negotiations would drag out. People would hesitate on wanting to license us the intellectual property. So there were many moments at the beginning. Then there were whether the dollars would come in, whether we would be able to complete our license agreements to even get going. Because if we didn't have the licenses to the intellectual property, there was no there there. There was no business to build it from. There were a number of people that we wanted to recruit in from the Children's Hospital who have been working on this research and we wanted to bring them into the company. And think about it from their perspective. These people were working in a very secure 15,000 person hospital that was generating $2 billion a year. 
and they're going to join a startup with $10 million in the balance sheet that's going to try to do the first ever gene therapy and no one's ever been approved before. So tremendous credit goes to a lot of those people that took the leap and said, we want to join this endeavor. And I think very much consistently for those people, as it was for me, the thing that sort of kept us all going, that made them decide to join a small $10 million funded startup was the promise to work on this incredible science, to be at the beginning of a revolution in medicine that we're seeing unfold over this period of time, whether it's gene therapy, whether it's mRNA therapies now with the COVID vaccines, whether it's gene editing, we'll probably in the next 12 months have the first CRISPR-based drug approved in the United States. This was the chance to be at the beginning of that moment where medicine was changing and the way we thought about developing drugs was changing. But for most of those people, it was also about the moment we started this entire conversation about. They had seen and either benefited from meeting directly the families that had been in the earliest clinical trials. They had seen a kid who would not be considered legally cited to now being legally cited. And they had been a part of and witnessed that transformation. And there's very few things that you can do in life that are as profound as that. And so being a part of that was, for many of those people, was an easy decision or knocking your head against the wall for the 10th time to try to get the license agreement done around your IP was easier when you had that prospect at the end and those families that you knew you were working on behalf of. And that was always the thing that kept it going for us. We could go down the line of countless other things. We ended up having to delay our request for approval with the FDA by nine months because we were still working on our manufacturing process and took a lot of flack from people about being delayed for nine months. But we were also, in addition to getting the first approved, we ultimately got the first approved facility of any type that was making a viral vector-based drug. We got the first approval of that facility, which is at 38th and Market Street in downtown Philadelphia, 13 stories up. So it was not a typical manufacturing site. So there were moments like that. There were but again, all of there was a moment where one day we had some data in an earlier clinical trial, not related to blindness, but to a type of hemophilia that people in the investment community didn't like to read out. And we lost a billion dollars of market cap value in a day. You go through all these moments, but the thing that always kept us going was, one, we felt very convicted about the science and that it was going to work, even if it took us longer in some cases to make it work. But most importantly, we knew just how profound the impact of that science could be on a human's life, on a patient's life. And we all wanted to stay a part of that. We all wanted to keep working towards in service of those patients. And that always made it easier to deal with those toughest moments. We've broached the subject of Philadelphia now. And one of the denouement to the story, the addendum to the sale to Roche is this incredible impact you're able to have on the city now. And I know that wasn't easy. I want to hear more about this. Typically, when you sell a public company to another company, you don't have a lot of control over what's going to happen to your employees or your culture. Something really profound happened here. Share how you pull that off, what this means for Philadelphia to actually have Sparks Gene Therapy Center and, and potentially more broadly, gene therapy in the United States, having a large presence in Philly. I'll give you one sense. And by the way, 20 minutes ago, someone sent me a text by coincidence saying, I just walked by the construction site of the newest Spark building. It's awesome to see. Just to give you some sense, when we started the company in 
2013. That was when we began it officially on paper. Obviously, the work that Kathy was doing preceded that by almost a decade, and I had been involved with the project since 2011. But when we started in 2013, we had three or four or five offices in the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I think in total, we did the calculation once, it was 130 square feet of space. And by the end of 2026, Spark will have a million square feet in West Philadelphia, housing probably in the order of about a thousand or maybe more employees. So I say that in part because when you think about the impact of that decision about where to locate the company, that type of success can mean just that. If we had listened to certain venture capitalists that said we should set up the company and build it where they always build it in another city, none of that million square feet of space would have been built. If we had decided that we wanted to place it further outside the city in the suburbs somewhere because there was a lot of land, the skyline and the look of West Philadelphia would be very different. And so these choices that you make not only have an impact on your company, but they have a huge impact on the community around your company. And one of the things that I think is so important about the Spark story and the Spark experience was that we turned what is phenomenal research and multiple decades of effort by scientists working in academia in Philadelphia, both at CHOP and at Penn, we turned it into an equivalent-sized impact in terms of economic development and job growth and physical space right adjacent to that place. And I'll give you an example because I think it's relevant. We talked about the folks that follow science. You will probably know that weeks ago, the Nobel Prize was given in medicine to Drew Weissman and Catalina Kiriko for their work on messenger RNA, which of course eventually led to the COVID vaccines. Both of those scientists did their work at the University of Pennsylvania, where the two companies that we all know of that are most prominent in that COVID vaccine work are located in Boston and in Germany. And to me, that's the difference in the story between Spark and gene therapy and messenger RNA. There was an opportunity for, maybe there wasn't a very specific opportunity, but there clearly was a path where that research could have been commercialized and the company could have been built physically proximate to the initial founding researchers of Drew and Caddy, but that wasn't what transpired. And my hope with Spark was to change that precedent, change that trajectory, and have phenomenal research that is and continues to go on at CHOP and Penn at other hospitals and universities in a place like Philadelphia, and have that directly impact the neighborhoods and the people that live right by those places through the creation of companies. That was my hope. And my hope was also that Spark didn't necessarily have to be the only one that did that. And now today, there are about 50 cell and gene therapy companies in Philadelphia. When we started, there weren't 50 cell and gene therapy companies in Philadelphia. As they say, when someone copies you, sometimes it's a great form of flattery. And my hope was that it was both them copying, but them seeing that they could do just what we did. And hopefully many of those companies grow up to be the size of Spark. And it just creates a flywheel where you build more and more of an ecosystem. But that 130 feet to 1 million square feet encapsulates the impact of that decision to cite it where we cited it. It's incredible to see the impact you've had in such a short amount of time and corralling people around you from all facets of life. I know there was a quote in a Kennedy School magazine that came out a couple of years ago about one of your first career stops, which was working for Governor Ed Rendell of Pennsylvania, doing some healthcare policy work. And I just find it so interesting. You're the 
best embodiment of that class of folks that merge together the private sector, the public sector, and the nonprofit world and everything that you do. Where does this come from? I know Rendell told you and quoting from this magazine that he said that over the next 50 years, the United States would face three crises, healthcare, education, and energy. In all three, there's an explicit and substantial role for the private, nonprofit, and public sectors. If you devoted your professional career to any one of these, first, you'd never be bored. And second, and most important, you could leave a lasting mark on the nation and humankind. Now, you hear these quotes sometimes. This comes from a mentor of yours, and I think most people then just go down a standard path. Somehow, this actually impacted you in the trajectory of your career. Why is that? You can even go back further to your parents or your upbringing, but what was it that at that moment when you heard that from Governor Rendell really inspired you to continue down this path to merge across a lot of different sectors and the private and nonprofit worlds? For me, it really did start with my parents and my upbringing. I'd watched my father, who started his career, first came out of undergrad as a chemical engineer, but started his first career working in government in the water department of the city of Philadelphia. He then moved from the government sector to a for-profit environmental services company that actually went from being a private company to being a public company while he was there. And he eventually was the CEO of that company. But then having him eventually leave that job 25 years ago and go back, in this case, not to government, but into the nonprofit sector. So my father's been in government. He's run a for-profit public company, and he now runs the local public television and radio station in Philadelphia. And then along the way, I saw him on multiple boards, the board of the local park commission, the board of the local opera. And then my mother was and is a professional opera singer and a voice teacher. And I saw her a part of multiple arts organizations. I saw her actually start her own nonprofit that was trying to bring classical music to kids throughout Philadelphia. So I was around people from the beginning of my life that in my parents who embodied this ability to cross multiple sectors, but also who just believed you needed to be a part of civic life. You needed to be giving back to your community and you could do it from multiple seats. You didn't have to be in one seat. You didn't have to always be in government. And so by the time I was sitting at Rendell's office talking about and listening to this quote from him that you just read out, I had already made a choice. When I left undergraduate, I moved to New York City and worked at a well-known consulting company where I was working on very large projects in management consulting capacity. But two and a half years in, I just felt that I was doing great work for very large corporations, helping them save a billion dollars of efficiency here or there. But the governor and his team called me and said, I was 24 at the time, we want you to leave New York City. We want you to move to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which was personally a sacrifice. But we want you to come join the state government and help us see if we can wring out a similar amount of money and efficiencies out of the way we spend state resources. And that was the first thing I did for Rendell was work on a management and productivity initiative to try to wring out a billion dollars of savings out of the cost of running government so we could go back into really important public programs. So I had already voted with my feet, so to speak, as they say. I had already made the decision once to go from the private sector to the public sector. And at that time, I had gotten into the Kennedy School and to the Business School at Warden, and I decided to defer that a year. So I had already knew that I was going to go back and try to study 
business and public policy at the same time. And what he just did was focus that energy even more directly for me in the area of healthcare, which I subsequently have spent my time on over the last 15 years. But I think it's fundamentally critical to understand that the private sector, the nonprofit sector, and the public sector, they're never, I don't believe, at odds with each other. They're actually usually working in some synergistic way that if you are able to speak the language of each and understand the perspective that each one brings, you can think about trying to tackle a problem not from a particular sector standpoint, but how you want to tackle the problem. And then you can figure out which of those various three places or all of those places in most cases you have to traverse to make that lasting impact. And that's the way I've viewed my own sort of path and career. Even when I was running Spark, I spent a lot of time in Washington working with, of course, both the FDA to get a drug approved, but also just as much with CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, to help understand how we were going to facilitate the payment of the first cell and gene therapy that would come through their door. I was never afraid to engage in those conversations. I actually was excited about it. And it's because I was willing and always interested in trying to solve the problem, regardless of which sector someone sat in. When we think about this compounding equation, the P, the passion or purpose, I think you would just unpack so beautifully how a multifaceted version of that that's connected can drive you for such a long time, for a lifetime, so that that exponent, the T, is never ending and the output is enormous by the end of it. What about right now? You sold the Roche. You remain CEO for a couple of years. You're now a free agent that has a ton of interest. So talk to us about what this feels like. You're still really young in your mid forties to have a second act in front of you. And it's not only one second act. There's all kinds of different areas you're getting into. How would you frame that? And what lessons would you impart on 22 year olds to think about this once you're 20 or 25 years into your career? You have this beautiful pivot and now you again can choose what you're doing with that opportunity. I have thought a lot about this when I was stepping down 18 months ago, I thought a lot about this idea of compounding, maybe with a different term in mind, but I'll co-opt it now. And what I was in particular thinking about was the fact that I had spent a decade or so working on Spark. And that one company, I think in and of itself, I thought a lot about the position I held there in a way that could create a compounding effect in multiple ways. I thought about the idea and the fact that if Spark could be a successful company in West Philadelphia, that we would instigate 50 other cell and gene therapies to be created. And that's happened. And the fact that if we showed that there was a model to take research that came out of a university at, in Philadelphia and turn it into a company that had a million square feet, that someone else could do that and have the company have a lasting effect on the community. So I thought a lot about how I did that from one seat, whether it was multiple drugs that could get approved, whether it was multiple companies that could be created in a community, whether it was actually the idea that CHOP gaining that $750 million could then reinvest it in other childhood diseases that maybe we could never work on with gene therapy. Gene therapy is a phenomenal technology. I can apply to every single disease, but maybe Spark's financial success as opposed to its product development success, could support research at CHOP in autism that maybe we weren't going to work on with our particular technology. So I thought a lot about how this position 
I held could be used to have an impact on patients, have an impact on a place like CHOP and child healthcare, could have an impact on community like Philadelphia that hadn't and didn't have a vibrant biotech ecosystem, certainly not compared to others. I realized I was doing all of that in the one seat that I was in. And so the way I thought about this next chapter, was there a way to even compound the compounding effect by working across and with multiple entrepreneurs who were starting their own Spark-like company and be a mentor to them, be a guide to them on their own journey, if I could not only pick the ones that had similar ethos to me that would understand that their role wasn't just about building a biotech company, but it was about building a biotech ecosystem or about leaving a lasting impact through who their shareholders were, that if I could find those similarly minded people and guide them in that approach, if three, four, five of them had success, I could really multiply the impact of what I was doing through those people. That's the first thing that I decided to do was to spend this time as sort of a coach, as a mentor. I actually like to think of it most specifically more in the context of being a guide. I think you know this as well, Paul, but I have taken more recently to picking up sort of mountain climbing and mountaineering and rock climbing again. And so I've spent the last couple of summers going up some of the most signature peaks in the Mountain West. And I go with this guy all the time who's become a friend of mine. And I watch him and, of course, benefit from his guidance as I'm going up these ascents for the first time. And I think very much about that parallel to what I try to do with these entrepreneurs who have never been up the mountain, so to speak, in their entrepreneurial endeavor. And I'm walking and going with them. I'm not necessarily on the bottom, just pointing out with a laser pointer, like turn right, turn left. I'm on the mountain with them, but they're going to be the ones stepping on it for the first time. So that's how I think about the one part of this second chapter. I am also made a very conscious choice with my wife to build a foundation that's focused on education here in Philadelphia. And it is with a specific aim in mind, which is to build creative confidence in children. I think that much of our approach to education in the United States is a bit focused and too short-sighted on trying to ensure kids achieve proficiency in things. And if you just realize what the potential of tools like AI 3.0 are doing, they're turning things that were proficiency-based years ago into things that are now going to be routine for a machine to do. And the ability to be successful is going to be whether you can integrate information and use creativity on top of things that used to be proficiency-based. We're building a foundation that is dedicated to trying to foster creativity in kids in Philadelphia. But of course, that has a huge component of the arts to it. My wife actually just joined the board of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which is one of the nation's really unique and phenomenal art institutions. And so we have similar interest and I think a belief that the arts are not just for people who become artists. That's, of course, a phenomenal outlet for it. But I believe that some of the reasons why we ended up with CHOP as an investor or that we developed a payment model that no one had proposed before was because we had people and I was one of those people that were willing to think creatively about financial solutions, about business solutions. And so I think creativity is can be the realm of anyone in any profession. And I think it's important to foster it in the next generation. And then I'm continuing as part of the second act to spend time with the now governor of Pennsylvania, who 
became a friend of mine back when I was 24, moving to Harrisburg. And I'm helping him think about how can he point the investments of the state in a way that could help drive further economic growth in innovation-based industries like life sciences. In some ways, it's what we were just talking about. I'm doing work in for-profit startups. I'm doing work in philanthropic areas and nonprofit. I'm doing work with public sector leaders like Josh Shapiro, governor of Pennsylvania. And they all have the ability to work together with each other to achieve various aims, whether that's economic opportunity for people in and around Philadelphia or in Pennsylvania through public policy or through company creation or impacting opportunity through education with kids. So that's the way I'm thinking about this next chapter. If we double click on biotech and life sciences, you outline the history at a high level of the biotech industry, then gene therapy taking a couple of decades. And thanks to you and the team around you now bringing this to the world. Let's dream. Let's go think out 10, 20 years from now. What are you most excited about in life sciences and healthcare that maybe are underestimated in terms of the impact that a number of the companies, the new scientific techniques, and the capital going into this industry can really achieve if you look out 10 to 20 years? I think at the highest level, this century, the 21st century is going to be marked by the cure. At the end of the day, we have, for the most part, the prior century was about developing small molecules and even in some cases biologics, but things that you have to infuse over and over again to try to manage your disease, correct your disease, treat the symptoms of your disease. And whether it's gene therapy, whether it's gene editing, whether it's re-engineering immune cells like T-cells and what we call CAR T-cell therapy, these all hold the prospect of fundamentally curing disease and going at the root cause of them, at the molecular cause of them, and changing the molecular nature of a cell to correct the disease. Essentially, we're engineering at the genomic level, at the molecular level, at the cellular level in a way that can correct something within the body and leave the patient with the prospect of moving back to normalcy and not having their lives limited by their disease. I think it will be an incredible transformation. It's the thing that I thought of and was thinking about when I had one year listening to the prime minister and maybe my head was focused more on this prospect of what the molecularization of medicine could look like. It's coming true. As I said, we're going to see the first CRISPR-based gene editing approval shortly. I think over the course of the next five to 10 years or even sooner, we're going to see the first progress in applying this T-cell engineering approach, which has been very successful in treating leukemias and lymphomas and myelomas. If any of you followed the arc of the CAR T-cell area, I think it's going to now apply to the other 93% of cancers someday. It's going to be applying to lung cancer and breast cancer and colon cancer. The current treatments, it will be and holds the promise of being a one-time approach. So I think all of that sits in front of us. And then I think the second thing which holds tremendous promise, and it is consistent with the quote that Rick mentioned from Steve Jobs at the beginning of the conversation, that I think this is going to be a period where there is going to be continued convergence of our understanding of biology and our understanding and rapid pace of technology. I think that whether it's AI 3.0 or other machine learning incarnations, or whether it's just better capture of critical data and building up of critical data sets in a way that they can be analyzed, I think we're going to have better opportunity to diagnose diseases way earlier 
And if you pick an area like cancer, you can diagnose most cancers when they're at stage zero or stage one. The prospect of treating and curing that cancer are just so different than if you catch it later. So I think there's a huge promise that the future holds in terms of what data and the integration of technology and our understanding of biology holds in terms of picking up and capturing diagnosis of patients sooner. Those are two things in particular in the space that I'm extremely excited about. I'm thinking about just the blocking and tackling of getting things through clinical trials. And you mentioned data. You and I have talked a lot about CROs and other players in the space that you work with hand in hand. You did at Spark and other companies do in order to implement clinical trials or get supplies for the scientific labs. What promise does AI have to speed this up? You mentioned earlier that it's it's one thing to test something in mice, but then you get to humans and it's a different ballgame. As the number of gene therapies expand, what role can AI play here? I've been thinking a lot about this space over the course of the last year and learning a lot about it. And there's some really excellent companies out there that are applying the principles of machine learning and in other cases, large language models to very discrete and specific research tasks and activities, whether that be designing of a drug or finding of a particular biological target that might be unveiled through the use of machines in some way, shape, or form. So I think there's a lot that's possible there. I do think that we are at a moment where I think people are thinking it's going to solve more things than it is possible right now. I think there's some of these places where people are applying it that we don't actually have a large enough training data set You have to think about, and you take a step back and think about a platform like the ones that we know now that are available that have trained themselves on the entirety of human text and the internet. Just think about the volume and the size of that training data set. If you go and think about somewhere in healthcare, you have to ask yourself the question, do we have that same volume of data to train a system on? And in some cases, the answer in healthcare is that we don't have the data yet, or the data is fractured or fragmented. So there's aspects of the promise of large language models specifically that get trained on all human language from a source like the internet that the parallel is not there yet in healthcare. However, I think that one of the areas of greatest opportunity within in life sciences is actually just in the things which are more mundane, but are really critically important to the development of a drug. So for example, if you're sitting in a regulatory affairs group within a pharmaceutical company, the document that we filed when we submitted for our approval with the FDA, I think it was like 60,000 pages. So you have to write 60,000 pages to submit that for approval for Luxterna. Think about that task and how you could use various language model-like technologies to be able to do that task more efficiently, do it more quickly, quality check the submission. I think there's huge opportunities there. Now, that's not as sexy as designing a new drug using AI, but the reality is there is a huge amount of resources that the biopharmaceutical industry spends in writing those documents. There's a huge amount of time that could be spent that could get shortened. And there's a huge amount of risk that's intended in, for example, regulatory submissions that could be de-risked by having 
systems that can check and cross-check that. And so that is an area in the near term I'm really excited about. Because if you think about just improving by 5% or 10% the efficiency of bringing drugs to market, you create an extraordinary amount of value from a financial perspective, but you might bring a couple hundred drugs to market, which is more important and impactful from a societal and human health perspective. So I think that's an area I'm most excited on. There's actually a company that's in Philadelphia that is doing some of this work now that I've both committed some resources to and committing time to that I'm excited about as an example of that. That's an example of an area that I'm pretty intrigued by. There's a lot of questions swirling around about how people can get involved. And you can think about the various hats. Someone could be an investor in biotech or maybe in an adjacent industry, or maybe there's something that students can do like you did in taking a really multifaceted approach to their early career, their graduate school, and then finding opportunities. If you were a 22 year old right now, what would you want to be doing? What would you recommend to folks that they learn about so that they can get involved in what is going to be an extremely important and fruitful theme for the next 20 years? The first thing I tried to do then, and I still try to do now, is first think about not what am I doing, but what is the impact of what I do going to have? I would start with that question, which by the way, often took me to the path less traveled from my classmates at times in undergrad or whatever it might be, because you're framing the question differently. It's not the question of what should I do? What role should I take on? It's what seat can I find myself in or can I create that will give me a chance to shape and be right in the middle of the room when key decisions are going to be made that will impact something, in, in my case, in human health? So I think it's important to ask, what is the work that I'm doing and what impact and how close does that work have an impact on humankind in some way? I think that's just my own view of the world. People can view it differently, but that's my view of the world. I think the second thing is I often ran towards opportunities where I was going to be given way more responsibility than, frankly, I should have. Not because I was certainly ambitious. There's no question about that. But it was that I, in retrospect now, it turned out that getting into those places where I had more experience, where I had more responsibility than the matched experience I had, was forcing me into places and forcing me to grow and develop faster than if I took a step-by-step approach. Again, that was just, for me, what worked well. And what I found in a way that would be surprising is that actually going from the first job I had, which was in a consulting firm, I didn't actually always have that. But deciding at 24 to leave New York City and leave a private sector job to move to Harrisburg and work for a governor, I had a huge amount of responsibility. I was all of a sudden, not the first year, but over the course of time, I was basically the primary person dealing with the entirety of sort of the healthcare environment and healthcare issues within the state of Pennsylvania. I was also dealing with, I was his primary advisor on sort of emergency management and military issues. So I was dealing with four-star Air Force generals. And then we had passed a slots gaming law. So I was dealing with racetrack owners who were trying to open up slots gaming facilities. And so I was the person sitting in front of a disability advocate, a four-star general and a racetrack owner. And I had to get up the curve and learn enough that I could ask questions and be knowledgeable and be credible and be able to communicate with these people and represent the governor in doing it. I didn't have the background to do that necessarily, but I learned it quickly and I was 
thrown in the deep end. So I think the point on that is you never know, and you should think in some ways often orthogonally about where you might find those experiences where you get way more responsibility than you probably should. But I just think getting those opportunities in an area where you can leave a lasting impact on the world and having a tremendous amount of responsibility early is literally throwing you in the deep end. And I think it's the way to learn best. I think it's so fascinating thinking about the commonalities with Todd Combs from Berkshire Hathaway. Similarly, when he was in Florida, he worked for the state financial regulator while a lot of his friends were working at big consulting firms. And I know you did that in New York for a little bit, but very early on going to Harrisburg and just getting all that responsibility, you talking to four-star generals, there's no way someone in their first few years of consulting are doing anything like that. It's a great reminder for everybody if you can take that path less traveled. And you mix that with, I think the elephant in the room here is that you're talented and you're curious and you've continued to learn in a lot of subjects. And that theme continues to come up time and time again. And you never know when those different paths are going to come together or when your dad working in the public sector might come back to help you years or decades down the line. Yeah, I would say a couple of things about that, as you're saying it, Paul. I think one, the other thing I think I benefited from that government experience was if you just think about the extreme difference in background of someone who's a disability advocate versus a four-star Air Force general versus a racetrack owner, you learn very quickly how to relate to different people. And at the end of the day, the job of leader of any organization, but certainly what I found in the biotech industry is that you have people on your team who are tremendous scientists, some of the best people in the world at their craft. There are tremendous physicians who have been in charge of their own world of running their clinical practice. There are people who've done extraordinary things, raising capital, who've commercialized. But every one of those people comes from very different backgrounds from each other. And that's just within the company. Then you're talking about trying to relate to members of Congress, trying to relate to patients and their families, trying to relate to physicians who might be involved with your treatment. Think about the difference in the same day talking to a patient and talking to someone on Wall Street, and then talking to someone who is in your science team working on the differences in what they understand in the world that they see is so very different. And I think what it gave me early on was the ability to find connection and relationship with very different types of people. And that to me is probably one of the most important things you can learn and practice on and develop as a leader is just is relatability and genuine relatability. There are a lot of people who are leaders of organizations who I think they actually don't use the full power of, of their own personal sort of story because they don't fully reveal who they are. They're not authentic. That's actually something it took me a while to learn myself, but I realized over time how much people want to know and learn about you and relate to you when you're the leader of their organization. Along similar lines, what advice do you have? I guess this is supposed to be a class about investing. For investors out there who are generalists to dip their toe in the water of biotech investing, is there anything that can be demystified or simplified? Or is this just an insurmountable problem that will persist? It's a fair question. It is complicated. Frankly, at the moment, I would say that there, the last couple of years, and I can't speak to other industries, but my observation of what's going on in the broader biopharmaceutical industry is that there has been an extraordinary amount of progress over the last two years. There's been a number of new 
approvals that have happened. There have been whole new classes of therapies that are going to get approved. And I'm not sure that any of those are frankly priced into the vast majority of these stocks right now because they've stagnant at their same 2021 prices. And there's too much substantive progress being made that that won't over some period of time, and I can't tell you what the time frame is, but that over some period of time, those things won't come back to make continued sort of productive progress for those enterprises. Think about just the vast number of new medicines that are being developed against things like diabetes and even some of these new trials going on in obesity and so on and so forth. There's a whole new area of medicines that didn't exist. So I'm generally very bullish on the space. And that even doesn't speak to the just sheer scientific knowledge explosion that's been happening and will continue to happen. And I don't see any reason that will slow down the new innovations that are being developed in things like gene therapy and gene editing and cell therapy and mRNA therapies and RNA therapies. Everything I just rattled off didn't exist 20 years ago, effectively. It's hard to predict but it's hard to imagine that we won't rattle off five new things in 20 years that were on top of those. It is hard, I would say, though, to pick an individual stock. That is certainly the case. However, I don't think that there's that different of a mantra that goes into investing in other areas that goes into biotech, which is that you do, I think, want to pick the team. Because at the end of the day, there are Assuming you don't create a company that has a singular thing that it's doing, like let's say a single drug company that is in a clinical trial and the trial is going to read out positive or negative. Okay, look, the team could be the best team in the world and that trial could read out negative and the thing goes to zero. That is just the reality of that type of company. But if you're building a company that has a platform technology that can apply to many different areas and is going to have setbacks, but if it's run by a team that has either experience or has potential and you see that in that team, there's going to be twists and turns and it's going to go down at times. But the trajectory when you zoom out over a five-year or 10-year period should be positive if you have the right team there. And maybe that's the last thing to say. I think one of the challenges with investing in this space isn't just that you have to have some specialists, but you have to have a long-term view because it's research and development. And at the end of the day, research and development is not a short 10-year thing. In my view, one of the most successful public investors that I know of in this space does just that. They have a highly concentrated position in probably 10 to 20 companies, and they've held those positions for, in one case, I can think of a company they've held their position in for 15 years. And in the case of Spark, they were a shareholder in Spark. They bought our shares at $6 a share, and they never sold, and we sold the company at 114 a share. And that was a six-year run. That wasn't as long as they've held other companies. So I think that's the other dynamic, is you have to have the tenure. Well, Jeff, this has been amazing unpacking the Spark story, your story. I think back to the fun years we had in grad school. It's just amazing what is possible just in a decade or more. And you've outlined this super unique balance, unique to you, of this patience and yet eagerness, ambition, kindness. You're an entrepreneur at heart, and yet you're a seasoned public company CEO, and you've created a company in your own image. But like you just said, you've then passed it along to Roche. You're passing it along to the city of Philadelphia, and there's so much more ahead. So these lessons are really powerful for everything we talk about in Art of Investing, and we really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with all of you. Thanks so much for showing up to class today. For more Art of Investing episodes and to explore all of the resources we mentioned today and more, 
check out staygrovey.com. That's staygrovey.com. That's it for now, and we'll see you next time.